Hello, this is Courtney Act. I am at the National Gallery of Victoria here in Melbourne because I am going to see queer stories from the NGV Collection Exhibition. Excuse me, can you tell me which way to the queer exhibition? You can take the elevator up to level three. Thank you. Welcome back to the NGV's Queer Podcast. I am Courtney Act, and today we're talking queer strategies. I'm going to be having a chat to Pip Wallace, Curator of Contemporary Art at the NGV, and I'm also going to be talking to artist Frida Taranzo Yeager. To start, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners of the land which this exhibition and podcast takes place. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. This podcast is a five-part series. If you haven't listened to the others, you can go back and listen to them. There's been some wonderful conversations with the curators here at the NGV and also some amazing artists. In the series, we explore the themes and the artists and the artworks that are represented in the NGV's new and free exhibition, which is titled Queer. It's on display from the 10th of March through to the 21st of August 2022, right here at the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne. It explores the NGV's collection through a queer lens. The curators have told me that, you know, sometimes the artists might have actively identified as queer. Uh, some of them might have lived in a time when such identification wasn't possible. And there's also works by artists who aren't queer but have a connection to queer histories. It's a really comprehensive presentation and it's the biggest of its kind to ever be presented by an Australian art institution. I know that the word queer has been reclaimed by LGBTQ people in recent years, and the exhibition title seeks to interrogate the history of trauma and the reclamation of that word. This exhibition features works that go back to antiquity all the way through to the present day, and they're from artists all around the world. One of those artists is somewhere else around the world. They are in Mexico City. Frida Taranzo Jaeger uses paintings to explore ideas of hybridity, sexuality and autonomy. Uh, rejecting concerns of technique or virtuosity, Taranzo Jaeger's interest in painting is both conceptual and political. But before my chat with Frida, I am going to have a chat with curator of contemporary art, Pip Wallace, and we're talking queer strategies. Hello, Pip Wallace, Curator of Contemporary Art here at the National Gallery of Victoria. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm so excited. Now, our theme for today is queer strategies. That's right. Indulge me. <laughs> well, uh, today we're looking at works of art in the exhibition that uh, use various strategies to explore queer identity, but also how queerness can stretch out from identity and be used to, I guess, dismantle all kinds of hierarchies. So it's art that uses queerness as a strategy? Yeah, that uses queerness, but also that uses other, I guess, artistic strategies to further a queer purpose. So for instance, some of the works we're going to look at use um, strategies such as appropriation, quotation, collage, 
humour, all of these different techniques that artists have up their sleeve, mm-hmm. so to speak, to um, fulfil whatever their intention is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're looking at queer artists who um, use these various techniques, these various strategies to explore what queerness can be, what it can do. Hmm. Let's dive in and have a look at some of the works. Mm-hmm. All right, let's give this a literal context. We're looking at Destiny Deacon, Where's Mickey from the year 2000. Tell me how queer strategies plays into this image. So this is a photograph by um, Indigenous artist Destiny Deacon and um, it shows um, Luke Captain, uh, an out and proud gay Torres Strait Islander man, dressed as Minnie Mouse. So he's got on some ears, a skirt, um, some gloves, very recognisably Minnie Mouse. Um, And Destiny is uh, playing up the kind of comedy of this character that we know so well from the cartoons. But here's where the queer strategy comes Mm. in. She's using this um, gender bending of the um, dressing as Minnie Mouse to create um, a sense of unfamiliarity in this very familiar image. So all of a sudden we have a sense of challenge to what we think we know about Minnie Mouse. Well, it's that interesting thing when people um, get outraged at Black Santa Claus. And, I mean, in this instance, Minnie is a mouse, so she isn't of a race, but we would think of Minnie Mouse being a white woman. That's right. She comes from a very particular moment in American post-war history. Mm. Um, She's associated with a very particular kind of Disney um, cultural moment. Um, And so we think of her perhaps as this white American woman Mm. mouse. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, what does it mean for for this image to be displaying a human that is an animal? Like even there we have a disruption of kind of what it is to be human, let alone what it is to be male or female, man or woman, and white or black. Um, and she's using these our, our familiarity with this image and twisting it to challenge the identity, race and gender stereotypes that Aboriginal people face. Mm. Um, so we've seen this use of humour, certainly, um, but also subversion as queer strategies. There's also something about the white gloves and the look, and this this could just be my mind, but... I guess that white gloves on a black person so often is associated with the minstrels, the black and white minstrels, which of course was, um, you know, a racist portrayal of black people. So it's it's even interesting just that to see those, yeah, those black hands and those gloves and even the way they're positioned sort of brings that to mind as well. Totally. And I think this is where we see her playing with history um, and putting a kind of queer black lens over a historical trope of the minstrel um, and using that to critique those histories of oppression um, with this simple gesture Mm. of a costume and this pose that Luke Captain holds, this kind of forced performative pose. Um, And she reminds us about these, these histories of forced entertainment essentially Mm. where black people were regarded as something of an entertainment Mm. or an other. Mm. Appropriation is something that Deacon is enacting here as well. She's appropriating the image of Minnie Mouse Mm. Um, and it's something that we see through a lot of the works in this exhibition, the use of appropriation as a strategy to parody 
to satirise, um, to create a kind of critical distance and remind us of how absurd some of the societal norms are that we take for granted. Um, and that's something that I think queer artists are particularly good at. Mm. Shall we have a look at some of the other pieces? Yeah, I mean, the other one we could talk about next, this Robert Rauschenberg work, Pledge from 1968, um, which, speaking of appropriation, is a really great one to think about. Should we stand up and Let's stand have a look. in front of it? This is a lithograph uh, by Robert Rauschenberg, who is an American artist, very important um, practice coming up in the 1950s um, and continuing in a moment of American history where art was moving away from abstract expressionism towards pop. Mm -hmm. So we've got here a series of images arranged on the page, images that were actually taken from newspapers and found um, media. Um, and he's used a um, technique called solvent transfer mm -hmm. to turn them into a print. So basically it means applying a solvent to the image to, say, the newspaper cutting and allowing that image to transfer onto the paper. Um, and what I think is so interesting about Robert Rauschenberg's use of collage is that collage can be thought of as a queer strategy in that it throws up into the air all of these images and allows them to find a new order, a new relationship with each other. It's kind of a disruptive strategy. And I think what's interesting also is the way that it disrupts time. Queer strategies were often talked about by queer theorists um, of the 80s and 90s, and one of them being Jose Esteban Munoz, a really important queer theorist. And he tried to disrupt the idea of a straight time. So rather than the idea that we move from the past, present and future, what if we queered that and threw it all up and recognised that, yes, we're in the present, but the past features now Yes, we're in the present, but we imagine the future. Time is not linear. Mm. I'll describe what I'm looking at for the, for the listeners. There's a large piece of, I'm going to say, parchment. Mm -hmm. uh, I see a woman's eye, a sort of very close-up of a woman's eye, and it's sort of got some, like, blue and purple sort of hues. It's quite high in contrast. And there's some people playing baseball. Mm -hmm. There's a car from the 1950s or 60s. There's some, it looks like a group of men hanging out on, like, a... New York stairwell. We've got some military guys. There's all sorts of different things here. Is there anything queer about the subject matter? This is a great question. And Robert Rauschenberg um, was a gay man who was in a relationship with uh, Jasper Johns, who we'll talk about in a moment, mm -hmm. in the 1950s, another important artist. They were not out um, in that time um, for obvious reasons about the experience of being gay in America in the 50s. Um, but subsequent to their practice, art historians have started to think about whether we can interpret a queer language of images in their work. Mm. And it's really, you know, it's uncertain. Mm. Is this a coded language um, about Rauschenberg's experience of the world as a gay man? Or is it simply queer because he's disrupting the way that we presume images to work, kind of um, subverting meaning? Mm. So next to the Rauschenberg, we have Jasper Johns, who was his boyfriend in the 1950s. There is something so 
romantic about the idea of these two artists being boyfriends in the 1950s and here we are in 2022 they're on the other side of the world hanging on a gallery wall next to each other yeah I mean it's a really beautiful snapshot of a particular moment in their lives but also in art history these two are responsible for a massive change in the course of art history in America in the 20th century and they did it together you know Mm. they were at at the kind of really important early moment of the career, they're working side by side, influencing each other's work, um, giving each other feedback and criticism, uh, feeding into each other's ideas. Um, this is a uh, also a lithograph by Jasper Johns. It's called Target, and it reproduces one of his most famous paintings. So Johns um, was known for working in many mediums. Um, he often created prints of paintings, which is something we can talk about in terms of the idea of um, quote-unquote authenticity Mm -hmm. and how that's been disrupted in his work. But speaking of authenticity, um, this is essentially an image of a target that you might shoot darts at or an arrow. Um, It's got uh, red around the outside and then concentric circles of blue and yellow. Um, And the work um, was originally, as I said, a painting by Jasper Johns. And he did it at a period where he also recreated other really recognisable symbols. So one of his very famous works is a recreation of the American flag in paint. Um, and, And what we face is the question of, is this a target or the image of a target? And is there a difference? Mm. He's saying, what is truth? What is real? What is representation? What is mimicry? Throughout his career, he's been elusive, mysterious, uh, and I find that to be a very queer strategy. Hmm. He refuses to let us know (laughs) anything. My brain's hurting (laughs) trying to think about, is this a target or is it an image of a target? It could feel like mental gymnastics to find queer meanings and things, but that's almost exactly the point. You're like, we're actually trying to stretch out and discover and, and understand what it means. Um, I think it's interesting the point you make about um, seeking queer meanings in these works um, and how we can um, understand them to be searching for something that doesn't yet exist. Yeah. They were trying to find a queer language in art. Yeah. You know, they came after this very macho, masculine moment of abstract expressionism, Pollock, you know, with the action Mm. painting. Mm. It was very much about a particular idea of masculinity, um, which was to do with expressing the individual's inside state. Mm. Whereas Johns and Rauschenberg started to look at the world around them. You know, Rauschenberg's using images from the popular press. Mm. Um, We see here a precursor to the great queer artist Andy Warhol. Mm. I was going to ask where these fall in that timeline. They're, They're working slightly earlier, but alongside Warhol and certainly had a friendship with him um, and an influence on him, definitely. Both of these pieces really do feel like they would have influenced Warhol because we see many of Warhol's processes in both of these images. Yeah, and Rauschenberg certainly did some screen printing with Warhol in the studio. Um, and there was a- At the a, factory. At the factory, exactly. There was a back and forth. And also when you start to think about that community of queer artists, um, Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns were very good friends um, influenced by John Cage, the mm. great queer composer and artist who we also have a work by in the exhibition. And his partner, Merce Cunningham, the great dancer and choreographer, um, and they often collaborated 
with those artists. So we're seeing a queer community that perhaps wasn't recognised publicly as that at the time, but if we start to look at these works, at the strategies they're using, we see that they are um, employing, I guess, a language, a queer language of images. So I'm going to be talking to Frida Taranzo Yeager, uh, who's an artist who was born in Mexico City and lives and works there. Um, tell me a little bit about their work. Frida is um, an artist who works with painting and performance, um, and the work that we have in the exhibition is called Autofellatio. It's made up of um, many canvases, and they kind of um, fan out from a central canvas, almost like a huge flower of a painting. Um, and the images show um, various things, but many of them represent parts of cars. And Frida is interested in the way that we can think about the car, traditionally a very masculine space, a virility um, as a queer space. Um, and she's also interested in um, the way that painting has a history um, very closely linked often with religion, mm -hmm. particularly the Catholic Church. If we think about um, the way that um, artists were often commissioned to make images of religious stories um, and figures. Um, and she is questioning the role of religion in the colonization of Mexico. Mm. So she's thinking about um, this particular form um, of painting, which was used mainly in the Baroque church, which was made up of many parts. So we know about a diptych, two mm -hmm. paintings, and we know about a triptych, three paintings. But this work um, has many parts, and that was often um, a form used in paintings behind the altar in churches. And so she's replicated that form. And so she's really questioning how um, she, as a queer woman in Mexico, can challenge that history. Uh, and she does it with a great sense of sexiness and a great sense of play. Uh, and I think you'll really love talking to her. And is that where the queer strategy part of her work comes in because it's raising these questions? And... Yeah, so she's um, using, I guess, historical forms and subverting them. So she's using the very forms of the church to question that history. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I see the queer strategy of subversion coming in. Mm. Mm. Well, I look forward to talking to her. Um, and I would just love to say thank you so much for sharing your time with me today and talking me through all of these images. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Hello and welcome, Frida Taranzo Jaeger. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you doing? I am very good. I'm excited to speak to you today. I know that you're in Mexico City. Uh, Where about are you at the moment? I'm in my studio. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a lovely studio. I have a garden on the back, and you're going to see the lovely. sunset, I hope. I know the people listening can't see you, but uh, Frida is seated in front of a lovely big window with the garden behind them. Frida, I want to talk about your work um, that is in the queer exhibition. Do you want to tell me about the piece? Maybe describe it a little? Yes. I mean, the piece is an altar painting. I've been doing a lot of altar paintings in my career. Mm -hmm. And this is a very special one. It's made of two different parts. One part is uh, hanging on the wall and the other part is kind of suspended from the ceiling in front of the piece. So if you put yourself in front of the piece, it looks like one thing, 
But if you are on the side, you could see that kind of it has like all this negative space around it. And it's an octagon. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the piece that it's hanging in the front is an octagon, which is shallow in the middle, so you can see the piece on the back, on, on the wall, and then it has eight different canvas surrounding it. So I think one of my most um, important gestures that I wanted to do with this piece was to add some velocity, you know, uh -huh. like I really want this painting to spin and like a turbine or something. Yeah. What's and the name of this piece? Uh, out of Elysia. As you know, it's like performing oral sex onto yourself. Yeah. So um, I like the roundness of it. You know, I like the, <laughs> you know, like how can you become like a perfect circle? You uh -huh. know? Like <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, a turbine is kind of like also kind of just rotating mm -hmm. and in, in, in a one like axe and then it just rotates. So, you know, I, I wanted to give like a, like a semiological kind of parallel there. And the I autofellatio for some reason springs to mind. Well, maybe it's because it's the only uh, time I've seen it depicted in cinema. Is in the film Short Bus. Are you oh, familiar yes. with this film at all? Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In the yeah, very beginning, absolutely. there's a there's a guy mm. who uh, manages to perform autofellatio on himself. <laughs> yeah, there was also this rumor, you know, about Marilyn Manson that he cut himself like two ribs. So he That's could right. perform out of relation to himself. Yeah. So I also love this rumor. It's just like, <laughs> who started this gossip? Because it's juicy. It's juicy. And um, it's also, you know, about taking a lot of manly or like masculine traits. I think this is mm -hmm. a work where I really try to appropriate a lot of like masculine traits and like incorporate it into my work. You know, like I, I, yeah. I work a lot with cars. So in this time it was just yeah. like, I want something that spins, that it's really fast. So I did this altar, which is also super like manly. What is it about mixing those masculine elements that you love? I mean, I think it's really important, like, you know, to kind of appropriate all these symbols until they don't become mm -hmm. masculine anymore. You know, if mm -hmm. like we like women are using all these um, symbols and, um, you know, moves, then it will, it will become not only a male thing anymore, but it will broaden its sense and it will break out of these binaries. So for yeah. me, that's important. And I think, you know, it's a very, very kind of symbolic, like, male symbol cars and in for example in relationship to out of Elysia, like motors machines it's something always that is associated with power virility extension of certain masculinity control so i really thought to own that especially you know as a queer woman i thought it was really important to allow myself to inhabit these spaces that will seem violent at first so it's not that you specifically loves automobiles and cars and things it's more about uh putting yourself in that place i guess almost of discomfort around those things to try and change the meaning of them 
Exactly. I don't even own a car, <laughs> I have to confess. Uh -huh. So, yeah, it's absolutely not that I have a personal fetish with the car, but I use the fetish yeah. as, a, as a symbol to make a metaphor yeah. about gender and about power and, you know, who is uh, allowed to be in which spaces. Hmm. I see in the center there's sort of like an engine part, um, and then in the panels that surround it, I see a number plate with a man's face and a rear vision mirror. I see different sort of machine parts. There's, there's also a shell. Tell me about the significance of the shell. Um, I think, I mean, I, I want to say first that I also choose like an octagon because mm -hmm. I read that you know, in the 1500s, 1600s, like men like Da Vinci and other artists at the time were really uh, obsessed with the octagon. You know, they wanted to make octagon architecture. They wanted to um, draw octagons. I mean, it was like a sort of like a mystic uh, geometrical mm. format. Am I at sensing time? a Fibonacci sequence, <laughs> sacred geometry? Maybe, maybe. You know, I, I don't know why. Maybe I just read too much into it but i saw a lot of octagons and i was just like okay if all these men are doing octagons i'm gonna do it as well and cool. um not the time but a little bit later uh rembrandt make a lot of etchings and he make a lot of etchings of seashells which are kind of weird you know he, it was not his thing kind of mm. like he was not uh, like really but he always uh, talked about them in a very interesting way because he said that seashells are the most artificial things in nature. Like he could not believe or for him like that this seashell was something natural. He saw it and he was fascinated by this complexity and the harness, you know, the the patterns they were so mathematical and so exact and so he was really fascinated by that. And for me, it's like men fascinations, mm -hmm. you know, like men are fascinated with certain things. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them back then in the, this is then 1900s, it was these seashells, you know, mm -hmm. right now can be machines, guns, war. The theme of this podcast is queer strategies. So I guess actually just in hearing what you're saying, there is a queer strategy here. You're taking masculine iconography and portraying it in a masculine way but as a queer woman deconstructs this binary and allows us to think about these traditionally masculine things exactly. from a different lens. I, I always think about vandalizing things, you know, vandalizing gender, mm. vandalizing uh, semiotics, yeah. vandalizing symbols. Because I think like being queer is a lot about, you know, learning by doing. We, you know, our contexts are very different, you know, gender, sex, preference, everything is so complex in within ourselves that I find uh, very hard for me to say, okay, this is the thing that we have to do or this is not what we should do, but more like just vandalize everything that we know it's wrong. And then we will see what happens. Once this structure mm -hmm. is down, then maybe we can start something completely new. 
that's such an interesting concept. I haven't heard it described as like vandalizing gender before. And there's something really fascinating about that idea. I guess when I think of like vandalism in the world, I think of um, people spray painting, which is so interesting because in like in air quotes, civil society I, or in my youth, I, I remember like, you know, my parents being like, oh, gosh, look at that. <laughs> Somebody's vandalized that wall. And then as an adult, I might look at it and be like, wow, someone took that boring, plain, ugly wall and turned it into the most wonderful piece of art that, you know, makes this neighborhood a better place. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that, uh, you know, sometimes we're really angry from many, many structures that oppress ourselves. And obviously we are not going to dismantleize patriarchy tomorrow. You know, this is and this is something I don't have in my power as an individual and neither anyone. So uh, yes. maybe Jeff Bezos, I don't know. But um, but the point is that what I can do is vandalizing. And I do think yeah. this is a powerful symbol. You know, in Mexico, there's been a lot of like vandalizing because of uh, women being killed here. So many of the women are killed here. Like it's unbelievable. So they went out to the streets and went and, you know, spray paint everywhere. Like the, the names of their daughters, of their sisters that were missing, that were killed. Mm -hmm. And it was such a powerful thing for me as a woman to go by in these fancy neighborhoods and see that. You know, I mm -hmm. thought it was a very powerful symbol and I tried to do the, th the same thing, you know, in within my work, obviously, you know, I think. Uh, but I tried to take these ideologies and symbols and vandalize them through my art. I, I saw a meme that a psychologist on a podcast recently said that, you know, trans people will bring about the end of society. Uh, which they meant as a negative. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting because I've often thought that trans people and gender nonconforming people and queer people are here to liberate society from the binary and sort of rigid construct that we exist in. And so in a weird way, I'm like, yeah, I kind of get that. Like <laughs> queer people are here to bring about the end of society to make it something better for everyone. Um, and I, I feel like it's, it's interesting hearing you talk about vandalism of these ideas because conservative or traditionalist people might say, see, <laughs> they're trying to ruin yes. everything. Yes. But this idea of vandalism is to question what is and to create something that is better and more beautiful, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, uh, you know, a consequence of, you know, people who are oppressed, which is... Most of us. So I also yeah. hope trans people bring an end to this because it's horrible. I mean, the, yeah. the world is dying. You know, people are so rich. We cannot even like, you know, uh, understand it or conceptualize it. I mean, in, in, in like there's so many unbalances in richness and access to human rights. I mean, I really hope mm. trans people bring this down because it's horrible. <laughs> but it's so funny because I saw it too. I don't know if the algorithm <laughs> like yeah. kind of sink there, but I, I saw it too. And yeah, uh, I also think it's a, it's such a shame that there's people living in a certain type of comfort who are really afraid of moving from there. 
and yeah. also don't realize that they are a minority in this planet. Yeah, it's that idea that something different um, and perhaps the way and the volume in which trans people, gender non-conforming people and, and queer sexualities are being understood and the way that they're breaking down the pre-existing power structures uh, in really, if you think about it, a really effective way. If you look at the last five to ten years of pop culture, the visibility of queer people, the acceptance of queer people around the world, the laws that have passed um, in our favour of equality has been so monumental. It's been such a fast... I mean, it was a long time coming, but the last sort of five to ten years, you can see how um, queer visibility and queer rights in general maybe make the heteronormative world feel a bit disrupted and a bit displaced. And I I often think that the fact that we as queer people were so different that we had to step outside the status quo to understand who we are is actually almost a gift that we can pay forward to heteronormative people who have never actually had to question. So, like, you're bringing it back to your piece, um, Autofellatio, you know, a man might walk up to this and be like, "Wow, oh, yeah, there's a there's a piece <laughs> of art that really represents me. Wow, oh, yeah, look at that engine." And then he might be like, oh, "Frida, that sounds like a girl's name," <laughs> and have have this whole moment of confrontation looking at your piece, which I imagine is one of the purposes, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I also think sometimes heterosexuality, because it's so centered to power. Is not like a sexual orientation anymore, but also a political mm. position. Because I don't. I, I also think that whether if you like the person of the opposite sex, you could also be, uh, you know, an ally to all the queer community. Mm. You know, and I think that will make you, in a way, not very heterosexual. Mm. You know, if you were just be like, I'm a feminist. I am pro-trans right I am you know people surrounding you who are also heterosexual will be like wait a minute you know you seem like a little bit gay or something you know like yeah, yeah. they will really question because I think being heterosexual is not only a sexual preference but it's also a, a, a position of power and 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 political stance mm. so regardless of you are queer or heterosexual you could also partake in taking down the patriarchy or mm. capitalism i think that's not you know excluding and as you say my paintings are such a man's trap you know mm -hmm. like i i've seen like very drunk men coming to me and saying like is this scar right it is this scar that you painted and i'm just like yeah it is and oh wow <laughs> they want to like call you out on the detail they're like you're a girl so you must like i need to check whether this car is actually accurate or not or if you've just yeah some girl painting a car sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really oh weird. But yeah, it's just like um, it creates really weird moments also yeah. like... Uh, Looking for an um, opportunity to discredit the, the work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also like to prove their knowledge, Yeah, you know, because they think this is something that it belongs to them. Mm. 
you know, it's just like, oh, this this is my space. Everybody, just please move. I am going to tell you what it is. They love to explain me what my art is about. So, <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. Like it would be one thing if you're a woman who loved cars yeah. and owned lots of cars and loved fixing cars and and identified in that way. But you've really chosen to subvert um, this symbol of masculinity. What are some other symbols uh, in your work that you like to use? Um, well, I think for me it's also very important that when when we as painters we take some symbol that we do it on an ideological level. You know, for me also these spaces are so psychological. You know, for me I always paint the cars from the interior and also the motors. You know, like I don't paint them like as a whole, but also like if you were like going in. Uh, so for me, this is always like in a semiological, symbolistic way of looking at, at things. And other thing that uh, I also take, for example, in this piece of Out of Elatio, you mentioned there is this photo of this man like in the corner. And that's actually one of my friends got a speed ticket. And this is the photo they sent to him. So... Um, okay. I think it's a very German format, but it's actually really nice uh -huh. because they take the picture of you. Like it's, I mean, it's also like really clear. And then he's looking at yeah. his phone and then down you have like your license plate. Uh -huh. Yeah. So it, it's like also, I, I think it's a very German format, but uh, I thought it was yeah. really beautiful. And I also <laughs> thought it was like a really good link with my idea of making this uh, painting spin because it also is just like a speed mm. ticket and yeah. also it's like another like symbol of like where do men get the audacity <laughs> you know where <laughs> like how can yeah. they get away with so many things but I yeah. I really try uh, you know to take the symbols like from my surroundings my friends and I also try to take a lot of symbols of painting history and a lot of references to painting history itself. Hmm. Uh, like the Rembrandt and also like kind of the lightnings were really popular uh, in the pop, uh, pop art time. Like Roy Lichtenstein, he, he like paint them a lot. So I think yeah. my, my primordial kind of focus is on painting history because obviously I use the painting as a medium to express myself so it's history is very relevant to me but then again the me the the way that you choose to display it is is very non-traditional I guess that it's 3d in and it's like multi-paneled and like you said there's this negative space between the the part around and the the, the depth of the piece where does that come into, where did that idea come from? And, and um, that's uh, something that you quite often use in, in your pieces. Mm, I guess it comes also with the question of autonomy. Uh, I also mm -hmm. think that apart from my queer discourse, I also try to use a lot of uh, decolonial um, theory. And I do think the kind of colonial paradox is also how to gain autonomy, you know, how to preserve what we are and not, you know, whitewash ourselves or our history, etc., etc. So I wanted my paintings to have 
like a move where they say, I'm autonomous. So I use a lot of paintings that freestand in the room. So it's just like, I'm autonomous from this world. I could actually, you know, mm. be in a garden as well. Mm. And so I really like that. And this was a really a little bit of a different approach because of the, you know, of the suspension and the spinning. I really wanted both to be kind of synchronized. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's a way for me also to separate painting from the wall and from these always very Western attributes that painting has. And then I put it in a, in a awkward position in sense of like, it's a painting because it's really using the basic of painting, like canvases, frames, oil paint, but it's also kind of like a sculpture or it's 3D or it has like something else. So I like to put this painting in this kind of position so I can kind of, you know, separate it from these like Eurocentric attributes. Whereabouts does the sort of, I guess, the feminine come into all of this? Or is that the point, is that we should be disposing of this idea of feminine and masculine? Or is it that we're disposing of the idea of what is, that masculine is for a man and feminine is for a woman? Yeah, I think both directions, you know, I think by myself, like, being also like a femme woman so that's very interesting but yeah you know it's get, getting re, uh, rid of this binary that just you know must you know things are just things and we have ca- categorized them in two but that it should not be the case at all and that it has to do with only like oppressive structures but I have the feeling that this is one of my most masculine works absolutely you know if we mm-hmm. go back to this um, categorizations. This is one of my most masculine works. Also, one of the most successful. You know, like mm. I have a lot of mm. paintings which are depictions of lesbian sex scenes inside cars, and those are really hard works for people to see, mm. for people to buy. For you know, it is really kind of more disruptive than these very masculine things. Although both you know, want to go in a radical direction. This is just so much out there and some of the others are not. It's interesting because so often um, sex between two women is still viewed by heterosexual men as being for the male gaze, you know, this idea of like lesbian porn. Um, If a, a, a heterosexual man is watching to lesbians as his fantasy, either he is just being a voyeur or usually he's imagining that this is for him and I guess therefore it wouldn't be lesbian sex because lesbians wouldn't want to have sex with him. Uh, I guess it would be more accurately, you know, bisexual. Um, But it's so fascinating how uh, to hear you say that the image of two women uh, making out in the car is not as popular because you you kind of think like men are like, oh, yeah, cars and two chicks making yeah. out. Oh. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like everything's for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I love that. They really think they don't exist but in their fantasies and they only exist to create this fantasy and then that's it. There is no yeah. further thinking about what does that actually mean. 
you know, that yeah. a woman doesn't need a man. I mean, that's unthinkable. But yeah, you know, I think it is very important for um, queer people like myself to create images to that give us a hint on, on how to love ourselves, how to love, how to love another woman, how to make love to another woman, how to, how does this look? I mean, we need these images. Mm. Like, otherwise, uh, one feels very lost or, you know, coming out is not easy. And then, and then you have, like, lesbian porn who's made by men. And obviously, there's no mm -hmm. relationship to actually your own desire or gaze. So, you know, I am not a very skilled painter and I don't uh, intend to either. You know, I'm not very good with techniques or... Um, or how to do effects, but I put it upon myself to do these symbols and create these symbols because it comes from a person who is not a man and who's actually loving other women. Yeah. Do you think it's the nuance that you're a queer woman depicting two women kissing that, I don't know, I'm interested in uh, thinking about that or understanding why one of your more masculine pieces is most popular? Yeah, I mean... I, I really don't know. I mean, I understand, you know, there is there is an intensity, you know. I also took very intense kind of like masculine symbols or moves or paintings. So I understand there is this intensity, whereas um, when I paint uh, like erotic scenes or sexual scenes between women, um, it has a more erotic um kind of connotation. So erotism is not like this, like, hey, here I am, look at me. It's more like, oh, it's more soft, it's more inward. So um, mm. maybe that's one of the reasons also, be, you know, because the two have different um, goals. You know, one is to be very mm. out there, very active, very dominant. And the other one is like to come in, you know, like this is how intimacy looks like. But I also have the feeling men who depict women doing that have also more success. <laughs> so <laughs> it is like kind of an awkward position, you know, for because it, it, it is really a female gaze and not a male one. Which is all the more reason to do it because it is the telling of different stories, be it through, you know, uh, visual art, film, television, mm -hmm. literature, pop culture, TikTok. <laughs> it's the telling yeah, of different stories uh, that the, if the more volume of stories, that simply means that they're less of that one kind of story that for so long was the only story that was told. And so, you know, your beautiful art in all of its forms is uh, a different form of storytelling from a different perspective with a different nuance and it allows people to reevaluate their relationships with these um, traditional ideals of men and masculinity or, you know, two women kissing painted from the female gaze. And it's those beautiful subtleties, I think, that um, shift perspective incrementally. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for people to see uh, Autofellatio at the Queer Exhibition. I've loved having this chat today and I'm really appreciative of your time and I have watched the sunset behind you as we've talked. Um, yes, now it's night time. <laughs> now it is night time in Mexico City. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, 
Thank you so much for your time and for your questions. If you want to see Frida Taranzo Yeager's amazing work, toddle on in to the National Gallery of Victoria here in Melbourne to see the queer exhibition. It is on display from the 10th of March through the 21st of August 2022. It is free and it is gorgeous. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this NGV Queer Podcast. I'm Courtney Act. <laughs>